This is an RNZ podcast. It's midday. In the wake of the storm, the cleanup after yesterday's one in 100 year event. Dozens still trapped in holiday hotspots and are inundated by delayed travellers. Fire breaks out across London as the city swelters through a heat wave. That was TVNZ's midday news last Wednesday, headlining freezing wet weather and floods in the South Island and Europe burning up on the other side of the world. But Wednesday's TVNZ midday news began like this. Kia ora, good afternoon. It's understood New Zealand Rugby's board is meeting today to review the All Blacks' history-making defeat to Ireland. New Zealand Rugby Chief Executive Mark Robinson labelled the performance not acceptable. Indeed he did, fueling speculation about a big change at the top of the All Blacks. But TBNZ understood wrong there about that NZ Rugby board meeting. There wasn't one on Wednesday, though in that fevered atmosphere, TBNZ weren't the only ones saying so. There was also breathless reporting that day relating to another event that never happened, a post-match press conference with the coach last weekend that got cancelled, though no one told RNZ's Barry Guy. I didn't get the message uh, and I turned up and uh, eventually uh, Joe Porter, our rugby reporter, told me, sorry, it's been cancelled. And I said, fair enough. But none of that would have been an issue at all if this hadn't happened the night before. The crumbling of an all-black empire before our eyes. They are in big trouble. Sportscaster Elliot Smith there, sounding a bit like an angry teacher in his commentary for News Talk ZB, reprised on ZB's sports talk show last Monday. And also mashing up classic commentary from the occasion was the Irish podcast Second Captains. I repeat it, in case you didn't hear it the first time, Ireland have beaten New Zealand on a clear scoreline of Ireland 32, New Zealand 22. New Zealand belongs to Ireland. Yes, New Zealand belongs to Ireland. Well said. (laughs) Bold call there by RTE's Michael Corcoran and the second captains in Dublin, who found that the win that ruined the weekend of All Blacks fans here set theirs up pretty nicely. They should just have more sporting events on Saturday morning at five past mm. eight. That's what I'm saying. It, it does give you a good run at the day. I have to it say, it gives you a run at the day. It also, it just emotionally, you know where you stand. You know, mm. if you get beaten, fair, fair, fair enough. You know, the better team won. At least it's done. You can just, you can go ahead, re-enter the world for a few hours and mm. forget about it. But then when you win, it just puts you in a bloody brilliant move. The follows. <laughs> Second captains Owen and Murph though were pretty pleased that their team, dubbed the Dukes of Wellington by the Irish Independent newspaper, was shown respect here. But there was a lot of, like, very, you know, magnanimous handshakes and, you know, they, they do lose, you know, with, with, with dignity. I mean, they don't have that much practice at it. Um, I mean, they will tear themselves apart, obviously. That's oh, fine. Oh, yeah, they absolutely That's are. Fine. And there was plenty of that in the media here this past week. No sooner had they ended up on the wrong side of that final score, some sports journalists here were settling scores with the powers that be in New Zealand rugby. Within minutes of the final whistle, for example, Hamish Bidwell wrote this on RNZ's live blog of the game. Having had to bow and scrape at all times and put up with the All Blacks' constant talk about their own exceptionalism, I can't say I feel for them. Media tend to be wary of criticising the coaching staff and team and New Zealand rugby for fear of repercussions. But it might be open season after this. Nothing should be off the table, Hamish Bidwell said, as the search begins for scapegoats and answers. But scapegoating people means to blame them publicly for something bad that wasn't actually their fault, so possibly not the word he was really reaching for there in the emotional aftermatch aftermath. The next morning on RNZ's website, pundit Jamie Wall also angrily pointed the finger at NZ Rugby. 
They let everything under the All Blacks wither and die, then presented the team as some sort of infallible, unimpeachable group that can never be questioned. Under the headline, When You Accept Mediocrity, This Is What Happens, Jamie Wall wasn't quite as gracious as some to the Irish. Ireland have gone from being a fun little sideshow to a team that now possesses a majority of players that have beaten the All Blacks more times than they've lost to them. A child born last year in New Zealand has had to endure more All Black losses to Ireland in their lifetime than a hundred-year-old who passed away in 2019. But not many people would measure their time on the planet against that sort of benchmark, you'd think. And one of them was Marcus Lush on News Talk ZB a day and a half later. I don't need the All Blacks to be the best in the world to make me feel good. So maybe I'm out of kilter, maybe I've got no passion. But I don't think it's the end of the world. But when Marcus Lush told his listeners the coach wasn't playing, it was a red rag to talkback callers calling in for the head of Ian Foster, and some rugby writers were as well. In the Herald, for example, Liam Napier said NZ Rugby is believed to be adopting a considered, compassionate approach to the all-black slump. But in the same article, he calculated that axing the existing coaching team entirely would involve a payout in excess of $2 million. Now, New Zealand rugby didn't exactly dampen speculation by suddenly scrapping a press conference with the All Blacks coach the morning after the third test loss. That became a story all on its own 48 hours later, after communications consultant Mike Jaspers, a former TBNZ journalist and NZ rugby PR man himself, criticised that decision on the social media platform LinkedIn. Losing is bad enough, he said, but indecision off the field is damaging for fans, the brand and the morale of the team, he said, adding, the media needs voices, not statements, and if you don't fill the vacuum, someone else will. And as if to make that point, the Herald then turned that into a story almost immediately on Tuesday afternoon. And then another one when the current All Black Senior Communications Officer Joe Malcolm responded to Mike Jaspers on the same platform, explaining the decision like this. The media didn't want answers. They wanted a coach to step down. It was my decision, not Ian Foster's, not to front. So I'll wear that. I was protecting people who have been subject to two weeks of hammering in the media. Now, an exchange of opinions on a social media platform for professionals is no big deal, usually, but this decision was still leading News Hub at Six Sports Bulletin three days later. There's been an extraordinary admission today from the team's media manager. This caused a heck of an uproar on Sunday morning, didn't Andrew? And rightly so, let's be clear. It is not uncommon for the All Blacks coach to front the day after a test, let alone at the end of a test series. So why was it exactly that NZ Rugby did can that press conference? Ian Foster is a human being who they wanted to protect. They also add that they thought that Ian Foster needed a bit of time to think about what he wanted to say at a time when journalists were, quote, out for blood. Now, online, News Hub reported that under the headline Team Management Claiming Responsibility for Cancelled Media Conference as if it was an act of terrorism. And in her longer online post, the All Blacks comms manager Jo Malcolm told her followers she was losing faith in people's ability to be journalists, PR people and humans. For the spin-off, sportscaster Scotty Stevenson penned a scorching satire announcing that the next All Blacks test could be cancelled on account of the media being mean and demanding. But a stuff story on Joe Malcolm's call to can the press conference, which was credited to unnamed stuff sports staff, appeared to endorse it. Malcolm's human-first approach is what reviewers in various sports have been calling for. 
The review into cycling, which was established following the suspected suicide of Olympic cyclist Olivia Podmore, found an emphasis on results in medals over athletes as human beings is detrimental to their mental health and well-being. And it seems that sections of the media are in two minds about all this as well. After last weekend's defeat, Martin Devlin on the platform couldn't agree more with his former radio sport host Matt Gunn in a slot called, ironically, Let's Be Positive. They shouldn't have cancelled the press conference. They're men, right? They're grown-ups. You know, you are essentially funded by the people that want to hear that. They're they're essentially funded funded funded. by the media and the public and to run away for whatever reason and decide not to discuss it, gutless and stupid. But before the defeat in The Decider, Martin Devlin had also asked Ian Foster's predecessor, Steve Hansen, about the pressure on the shoulders of any All Blacks coach. You know, you get a thick skin and you can cope with criticism and you can cope with honest analysis. It's all the other BS and the clickbait headlines and all the personal stuff that really offends me. And especially when it's directed at a guy like Ian Foster, who I don't think is getting an even break from the media here. Well, there's probably two fractions, really. I think one, Ian knows that the job comes with criticism. He's been in it long enough to understand that. And any All Black coach understands that. And you don't want ever that to change. But... It's got to be reasonably um, informed, I think, rather than emotional. And at the moment, we're getting a bit emotional, I think. Now, Steve Hansen had confidently predicted a response from the All Blacks last weekend, and as we now know, that didn't happen. But in that chat, even Steve Hansen, almost the winningest All Blacks coach ever, said that winning shouldn't be everything for All Blacks fans who love the game. You know, it wasn't that long ago that everyone was bemoaning that you know rugby was getting boring because the All Blacks were winning. Too, yes, too yes. Easy. I remember that mm. at the time and said how bloody ridiculous it was. And just last week, Hanson's predecessor, Graham Henry, brought down the curtain on Match Fit, a TV series in which ex-All Blacks who are out of shape together discover there's much more to life than winning with the All Blacks. When I was first asked to do this thing, I thought, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And then I got involved and I thought, shit, this is important, really is a really important message. And I said to Ray when I said, look, I feel very privileged to be involved in this. Now, Phil Gifford is a sports journalist who's seen it all before. In the past, he's called for the heads of coaches of underperforming all-black teams. And he's also fielded the uptight anguish of angry fans as a radio host. But he's also written a book or two about men's health and welfare. Okay, well, Phil, obviously when the all-blacks lose, there's a lot of coverage, there's a lot of attention, commentary, analysis... And all of it. Now, that press conference that was called off on the Sunday, obviously that's annoying for the media that want the chance to put questions. Um, but was it really as big a deal as the news media made it, made it out to be, that press conference? Well, bizarrely enough, yes, it probably was. If you go back to the last time that the media was really in full tooth and claw mode against the coach, I think we're probably going back to 1998 when John Hart was coaching the All Blacks and they lost five test matches in a row. Now, even during that period, the All Black public relations person at the time was a very good journalist called Jane Dent, who had covered the America's Cup for Television New Zealand. And Jane was still getting John Hart or sometimes Wayne Smith, who was working with him as backs coach, they were still actually answering questions from the media. I understand entirely the sentiments, if you like, and the feeling of that Ian Foster needed a break, and the poor bloke probably did. But in the end, I actually think it was, in a sport, particularly a sport maybe that prides itself on things, basically, to be honest, with the All Blacks, is Butch and Macho, 
as the rugby is, it was probably a bad error to actually um, drop a press conference at such short notice for such obvious reasons. But is there a bit of score settling going on here, Phil? Because, for example, just minutes after the match, Hamish Bidwell, writing on RNZ's website, said, look, for years we as journalists have had to bow and scrape to a rugby union that only wanted uh, you know, complimentary coverage of, of the All Blacks. Uh, and and yeah, he was clearly annoyed about that. Uh, David Moffat, former chief executive of, of NZ Rugby, uh, also on RNZ, said, you know, this is an outfit that will not tolerate criticism. Um, so is there a sense of now that they've inflamed the journalists, it's the journalists now taking the opportunity to put the boot in? The New Zealand Rugby has never had a warm and glowing relationship with rugby writers, but I do actually think on the other side of the coin, it's not actually as bad as possibly some journalists feel that it is. I don't think, anyway. I mean, look, I've been called the biggest prick unhung by one all-black coach in, in my day. I was told by another all-black coach in the 1990s, it wasn't John Hart, that he would make sure no other no all-black would ever speak to me ever again. And the fact is, we tend to forget that particularly coaches and players, for that matter, are actually human beings as well. So if you've written something or said something on air that they're not happy with, there's going to be some grumpiness. Is there a deliberate policy to make it difficult for journalists? At times it can feel like that, but by and large, I actually don't think that the relationship between the media and the New Zealand Rugby Union, as it was, or New Zealand Rugby as it is now, is perhaps quite as bad as some people are picturing it. And I'm somebody that actually goes to the test matches because I'm interested to see that some of the criticism, uh, really biting criticism of New Zealand Rugby as a New Zealand Rugby official done, it's come from people that I haven't seen at the chess match for years. Journalists are now complaining that this New Zealand Rugby Union uh, kind of demands that journalists portray the All Blacks as you know an unimpeachable brand that can't be criticised. I mean, there is tons of criticism of them and New Zealand Rugby officials, isn't there? Yeah, very much so. I mean, I, I would have thought that if, in fact, New Zealand Rugby shut down the media uh, completely then exactly how on earth would so many stories that say that the All Blacks are rubbish, that Foster should be sacked and so on and so forth, how on earth did all of those stories somehow get through, get on air? I saw a remark this week, for example, um, on the Stuff website where it said, oh, we've got an All Black coach whose nickname is the same as a Muppets. Sort of really snidey little backstabbing stuff like that. If I was in the New Zealand, in, in the New Zealand Rugby Union or New Zealand Rugby, then I would feel a bit aggrieved about that too. One of the comments about that press conference issue, Dana Johansson at Stuff, uh, she said that the intervention of Joe Malcolm uh, to say I needed to protect uh, the perhaps the captain and and the coach of the All Blacks from uh, you know media that and who was wanted blood. Yeah. She said the way she responded, these are Dana's words, reflects a chronic lack of understanding of the media's role within the rugby ecosystem. Um, maybe it reflects a pretty acute understanding of uh, the media's power uh, over the over to, to shape the discussion because, you know, that, that would have been a hostile event. It would have been highly critical of, of Foster. It would have been uncomfortable. And that's part of the reason why she did what she did. Yes, I totally agree that it, it would have been a hostile press conference in many, many ways. Uh, but again, I go back to John Hart in, in 1998 and to Jane Dent, who was public relations person then. She'd been in the press box with us, I think, and, and she'd scribbled some notes down and she'd written them during the game, but before the end of the game, and it was basically some thoughts about what John Hart might say if the All Blacks lost. And at the time, oh, look at this, look, it just shows how negative they are. But in actual fact, looking back on it, I think that what Jane Dent was doing was just very, very sensible, that 
surely that's the role of a public relations person, is to go to the coach or the captain or whoever's going to have to front a hostile media and say, this is how we're going to do it. You're going to say this, this, this and this. Or what would you like to say? Yes, I think you should do that. No, you, no, you shouldn't do that. Rather than what happened in the end, like the optics, I thought, were dreadful. You're watching on television news, and Paul Ian Foster taking what looked like a walk of shame through the all-big team bus. Now, none of that would have happened if they had sat down and quietly said, we, these are the questions we believe will be asked, and let's be honest, I would say your next-door neighbour down the road's cousin could have worked out what questions the media were going to ask on Sunday morning after that dreadful game. Uh, these are the questions that are going to be asked. How do you think you should go about answering this? And steering, without putting completely words into his mouth, steering Ian Foster towards suitable answers to some pretty hostile questions. Well, that desire to shield Ian Foster and possibly the, uh, Sam Kane from questioning in a morning after press conference, do you think that was genuine and, and if so, actually laudable? Because, I mean, for example, just this week we've seen uh, High Performance Sport New Zealand release its review of the New Zealand cycling problems, a 10-point action plan to protect the people that are you know, under pressure, not just from media, but because of the demands of high-performance sport. Is that fair and appropriate in your mind? I think it's a laudable thing to try and protect people who you feel may be damaged by it. What I would suggest is that these are two highly intelligent and very, very mature guys. Sam Kane was one of those people, the reason he was in the All Black senior group when he was only about 21 or 22 years old, because he has a maturity well beyond his years, um, I think they would both be more than capable of dealing with that. On the professional side of things, it, it was, I still believe, the wrong thing to do. There are, there's enough support inside the All Blacks and there's enough time, especially they had till the next morning, to work out what they were going to say. And as I've said, these are mature guys that have the support of a group behind them. Do you regret calling for the head of John Hart all those years ago, you know, in... in in fairly personal terms? Very much so. I, I don't regret the fact that I felt that he needed to be replaced before the 1991 rugby, uh, 1999, I mean, sorry, Rugby World Cup after five losses in 1998. What I do regret is I wrote things about him that basically painted him like uh, an absolute villain of the century and, and made it very, very personal, which it kind of was, too, because we'd known each other since we were teenagers. And at one stage, we're actually quite good friends. Only if I'd limited myself to saying I don't think he's the right man for the job and these are the sort of almost technical reasons why I think that's happening, rather than making it a personality issue, which is what I did. And I mean, don't me I wasn't alone, but that's no excuse. Hunting with the pack is, isn't an excuse for bad behaviour by, by yourself. And, I, and it was, at times, it bordered on vicious, really. And so, yeah, I actually do regret that. Whether other people, when they look back on their lives in 20 or 30 years' time, We'll regret some of the things I've said about Ian Foster. Well, that remains to be seen. For, for example, just to pick one, Duncan Garner, the Today FM host, he went on air saying, look, it's it's every Kiwi's birthright to have an all-black team that will fight for them. And and then his fellow host later on the day, Lloyd Burr, who's not so emotional about it, comes on and says, oh, I can't believe I heard that from Duncan. I mean, you know, good teams will lose sometimes. You know, get over it. It's just a game. That sort of do you think? Do you think a lot of this stuff is genuine or it's just media engagement, you know, that it's actually kind of performative. Yeah, it's hard to tell, isn't it? I mean, the famous clickbait issue, when you're, when you're saying things that will rev up talkback radio, for example, there are people, and I'm one of them, who I grew up in the era when the All Blacks were like gods that walked the earth. If you are a rugby tragic, then there's this bizarre sort of thing where 
the whole dream of your life. For example, talking about rugby tragics, how much it can mean to people. John Wright, a great cricketer, lovely man, terrific coach. And John Wright, the captain of New Zealand of the cricket, said to me one day, we were playing touch footy together about 20, 30 years ago, and he said, you know, I'd give up every test I played for New Zealand if I couldn't have five minutes in an all-black jersey. And so <laughs> that's how much the all-blacks can mean to people. So getting back to it, it feels very, very, very personal when the All Blacks don't play well. That was Phil Gifford, veteran sports writer whose opinions can be read in the New Zealand Herald and heard on News Talk ZB. He's also a former ZB and radio sport host, and among his many books and over 50 years in journalism, a guide to the health and welfare of Kiwi men called Looking After Your Nuts and Bolts. Now, coincidentally, the day before that fateful third test in Wellington last weekend, this was an RNZ's Morning News at 8. A study shows women's sport now makes up a fifth of all sports news coverage in Aotearoa. The latest results from the ongoing Sport NZ study show the coverage of women's sports in the country has increased 6% from the year before and is more than five times the global average of 4%. So good news and good progress in that annual Sport NZ survey across most media. And figures show all major media companies are doing better with gender balance in sports reporting, with RNZ and the Otago Daily Times, the top performers. That's the news. With sport, here's Joe Porter. And as if to make that point, Joe Porter then started his bulletin with this. The Silver Ferns coach Dame Nolene Dodua believes they're showing promising signs ahead of the Commonwealth Games, despite falling to a record 61-46 defeat to the New Zealand men last night in Auckland. And it was only after that that the big All Blacks game coming up got a mention. Meanwhile, rugby league convert Roger Tuivasa-Shek is set to make his All Blacks debut in one of the team's biggest games in recent years. And straight after that... I'm Catherine Ryan. On Nine to Noon today, a pay equity expert on what needed to be thrashed out to ensure the White Ferns match fee pay parity deal with their male counterparts. And that chat about pay parity and cricket added to the upswing in coverage of women's sport throughout last year identified in that report. Now, there's usually only true parity in sports coverage during major tournaments like the upcoming Commonwealth Games, for example, or the Olympics and Paralympic Games, where men and women are competing for their countries in roughly equal numbers. And, of course, the Tokyo Olympics took place one year late. So was that the only real reason, then, for the jump in coverage in 2021? Well, at newsroom.co.nz, the sports section Locker Room is dedicated to women's sport. So editor Suzanne McFadden ran the numbers on that and concluded that it wasn't. Women's sport and media coverage last year would still have accounted for 19% of the total coverage without the stuff from Tokyo. But while our media do seem to be giving us a bit more balance in sports news coverage these days, perhaps not so much in the newsrooms. This year's survey also found the proportion of stories by female reporters was actually down a touch. 11.3% went down to just 10.3% in 2021. And while the top three codes in New Zealand sports coverage, rugby, cricket and football, hog 60% of the limelight, Suzanne McFadden pointed out that just 11% of that coverage is devoted to the women's game. Now, later this year and next, three Women's World Cups in those very sports are all being held right here in New Zealand. And quite what that will do to the numbers in the next survey's coverage will be fascinating. 
However, another event will also have to be factored in next year, a Men's Rugby World Cup held in France. And as we can see from this week's frenzy over the underperforming All Blacks, there will be wall-to-wall coverage of that, even if the All Blacks flop horribly. And finally on Media Watch this weekend, one night last month, Mike McRoberts told NewsHub at six viewers the COVID surge was so serious, even the All Blacks were affected. Winter wellness continues to rip through the community. Even the All Blacks' preparation for the test against Ireland has been disrupted, with three coaches and two players testing positive for COVID. The government's launching an all-out vaccination attack this week in a bid to ease the pressure on the health system. And then News Hub revealed that the bill for COVID vaccine advertising so far had topped $43 million, and Act leader David Seymour disapproved. It's a reckless use of taxpayers' money. There are very few people still getting vaccinated. It's possible that advertising didn't even reach many of them. But the money for those ads certainly reached the media companies which carried them, which is why News Talk ZB host John McDonald told his listeners this last Friday. My finger is in the pie. Yes, my snot is in the trough. And yes, I'm riding the gravy train. I think that covers all the things that might get thrown at me for what some people will probably think is my defence this morning of the huge increase in government spending on advertising over the last few years. Now where John puts his fingers or his snot is too much information for most listeners, but his point was that his employer NZME, the owner of News Talk ZB and the New Zealand Herald, has benefited big time from official COVID advertising. In April, NZME cited it as a reason that profits were up on 2021 in spite of the COVID crisis and its investors got a dividend. Now, the same morning, News Talk ZB reported a range of government departments spent a total of $125 million on ads in the last financial year, and that's a lot more handy income for some of the media, NZME included. And on Friday, ZB's deputy political editor Jason Walls was asked if all this carried a whiff of propaganda. What you might argue a whiff, the government might argue completely nothing at all. So I think it could come down to a matter of semantics and um, a matter of perception. But the previous day, Jason Walls' perception of a much smaller sum of public money was on his mind for his daily chat with the drive-time host, Heather Duplessy-Allen. Susie Wiles is getting a documentary. Yeah, we got a documentary, actually. Uh, Susie and the Virus. Now, I saw a poster. Is that what it's called? (laughs) Yeah. Are you serious? Susie and the Virus, yeah. And he didn't like it. But I'm just so sick of everything getting taxpayer money for these um, projects. Why can't people just pay out of their own pocket? If TV1 or Marty TV or TV3 or any of the above want to have one of these these documentaries, fantastic. I'm just, I just keep seeing these things crop up time and time again when we have hospitals overwhelmed. And you see, you know, $20,000 not tons of money, but in the grand scheme of things, like if that keep, that sort of stuff keeps adding up. But that short online Susie Wiles video wasn't really news. It was shot back in March 2020 and it's been available online since September of that year with the sources of its public funding noted at the end. Now it's not unusual for those who operate in commercial media to criticise content being paid for from the public purse, so no surprise really that last Thursday ZB and its sister paper the New Zealand Herald rushed out stories about Jason Wall's objections to that two-year-old short film. Would you pay $20,000 for a documentary about science superhero Dr Susie Wiles? The Herald's story began. 
And after that, Susie Wiles, who made nothing from that film, pointed out that it would have cost New Zealanders about half a cent each. And that wouldn't help out the stretched health system a whole lot, you'd think. But the almost $9 million in wage subsidy collected by News Talk ZB's owner NZME in 2020 would have taken $2.25 out of the pockets of every Kiwi, Dr Wiles noted. Now, the response to that from Dr Susie Wiles you'd think would be a worthy addition to the Herald's stories about the gobsmacking sum spent on that short film. But anyone who went looking for that would only find that those stories were not online anymore. The Herald's one now has an error message that says, Oops, looks like a dead end. And NZME certainly seemed to think so. It's been scrubbed from the Facebook pages and ZB's website as well. Well, that short documentary, Susie and the Virus, was created for the platform called Loading Docs, which describes itself as an online launchpad for short Kiwi documentaries. Its producer is Julia Parnell from the company Notable Pictures. And this week she told MediaWatch the film hadn't received $20,000 in public money after all. This particular film did not start as being about Susie. The director was funded to make a very different film that required travel to Japan. And when the COVID lockdown happened, we had to pivot. The director was able to get that access in that week prior to COVID. If it was a, a society-changing moment for us, and we were able to capture it, and I'm very proud of that. We provide some production finance, and then they are required to do a crowdfunding element, which is engaging with audiences from the start, but also upskilling in ways to put finance together around projects. Now, the Susie and the Virus uh, documentary uh, was described as funded by the New Zealand Film Commission to the tune of $20,000. Is that actually correct? Well, that's not correct. Loading Docs is funded by Te Mangapaho, New Zealand On Air, and the Film Commission. Uh, the Film Commission's element of Loading Docs is very much focused on the talent development. We uh, provided 6000 in production finance and 2000 towards the post-production. So other costs would have actually been raised by the filmmakers themselves via crowdfunding or, in the words of the... Uh, article in the New Zealand Herald out of their own pocket rather than from the public purse. Yes, absolutely. So the filmmakers raised an additional finance of 7685 less 10%, which is through the boosted crowdfunding platform. And now that it's out there and, and has been up, I gather, since uh, July or August of 2020, has it actually been widely watched out of interest? It has been so appreciated by audiences it was launched in partnership with the New Zealand Herald on their platform, along with a high-profile story on Canvas on the 4th of July, and then on our platforms, and then went on to TVNZ On Demand, Radio New Zealand, Playstuff, and the spin-off, and has had over 200,000 views. So the New Zealand Herald, where public funding of this production has been uh, highlighted, shall we say, actually the first to have shown it and featured it in the... Um, colour supplement of, of the Weekend Herald canvas as well. That's correct. Out of interest, have any of the other loading docks been um, questioned for the sums of public money that have gone into them, whether they've been in the region of $20,000 or less? No, they haven't. You'd be happy for the New Zealand Herald and other NZME outlets to host future loading docks if they were so minded, I assume? 
absolutely. And um, all platforms and the fact that Loading Docks has a platform agnostic approach means that more New Zealanders can connect with our work and the, the work of our documentary makers. Julia Parnell there from the production company Notable Pictures, also the producer of the online platform Loading Docks. A year ago, ZB's deputy political editor Jason Walls labelled a range of COVID recovery funded arts projects a smorgasbord of abject waste. And at the same time, he said it's easy to poke holes in what the government's decided to fund through its $55 million public interest journalism fund. But this, as it turns out, is also another source of public money for The Herald and NZME. Two weeks ago, the Public Interest Journalism Fund announced $255,000 of taxpayers' money for a Herald video series called Unravelling Anxiety, all about how people from different cultural backgrounds coped with anxiety disorders during COVID-19 lockdowns and after. So we do wonder whether the Herald will air views on whether that could have been paid for out of their own pocket at a time of great health system strife or not. Well, that's all we have for you in Media Watch this weekend, but we'll be back with more on the media at about 10.30 next Wednesday night, talking to Karen Hay on The Lately Show with Midweek Media Watch, and then back again at the same time next weekend for Media Watch here on RNZ National.